Well, good morning, and thank you for the warm welcome that we've had this morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, it's quite an, an unusual, well, for me, unusual, just to have the the vista out the windows uh, there. It's it's great to know that we're we're in the world, aren't we? Uh, maybe not of the world. We hope, uh, but good to know that there's a connection between church and community, and this is as it ought to be. Well, as Graham said, my name's David Reimer. Uh, slightly unusual surname, it's a German name, Mennonite. If you know your, your Mennonite surnames, uh, you'll know that this is uh, one of them. Uh, if there's any other Reimers here, we're probably cousins, um, but Tyson's Dicks and so on. There, there's a little set of Mennonite surnames. Originally from Canada, uh, Susan and I have been living in the UK more or less since 1985 when we came over from my studies here. Our kids were born in England. We lived down south for a while um, and have been in Edinburgh for over 20 years now. Uh, most of that time I was a lecturer at University of Edinburgh, but in the, just over a year ago moved to the Faith Mission College, and that's my privilege now to be one of uh, Robert Murdoch's colleagues there. I think you know Robert well here. It's a real privilege for me to live and work there. Just so you know a little bit about us, Susan and I have a couple of adult kids. Kids, um, <laughs> uh, our daughter, uh, primary school teacher uh, at the moment in Fife, but she's on her way to Ethiopia in the summer, uh, long term. So that will be a bittersweet moment when she heads off there. Our son's been working on the continent for the past few years, but um, it's taking some time to travel before he settles to his next challenge. So. Uh, that's a little bit about us. Uh, a bit about a family, and in fact, we're going to be looking at a family story this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn to Genesis 37. Now, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so start at the front, and you won't have far to go. Genesis 37. It's the beginning of the Joseph story. It's a long story. Uh, well, Genesis 37 is a long story, but the Joseph story goes right to the end of the book of Genesis. So that's Genesis chapter 50, uh, the rest of the book. Uh, we're not going to read the whole, uh, whatever it is, uh, 13, 14 chapters this morning. Um, it is one of the great family stories of the Old Testament, ultimately a story about understanding, forgiveness, transformation, reconciliation, but it certainly doesn't start that way. Um, I don't know how many Tolstoy fans we have here this morning. Leo Tolstoy, one of the great Russian novelists of the 19th century. His novel, Anna Karenina, begins with uh, one of the great opening lines in literature, uh, daily, and there's lots of these on, that you can find, aren't there? A couple of years ago, the Daily Telegraph had top 30 opening lines in literature, and Anna Karenina was number two. That's pretty good. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, perhaps not wholly true, but there's some truth to that. It's been quoted many, many times. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And as we read the Joseph story, we see the particular unhappiness of Jacob and his family. Of course, there's a backstory. Uh, Jacob and his, uh, has had uh, with his wives Rachel and Leah and with their maidservants uh, Bilhah and uh, 
Zilpah, 12, well, 11, then 12 sons. Uh, quite a complex family situation before we even get going. And as uh, the Joseph story begins, the, it focuses in on one of those sons. Of course, famous from the musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, I don't know about Bible literacy these days, but at least there's Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. We know something of the story, how Joseph somehow was at odds with his brothers and the, and the story that went on from there. Well, we'll read chapter 37. We break into the story when Joseph is a teenager and uh, he's around mid-teens to 17 years old. Um, and uh, the story takes about seven minutes to read. So time spent reading God's word is always time well spent. Uh, so we'll read it all together and then consider what God has to say to us through it this morning. So we'll read Genesis 37. We'll read the whole chapter. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, uh, another name for Jacob, by the way, Jacob's other name is Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. In traditional language, this is the, the long sleeve robe or the robe of many colors, however that should be understood. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So Jacob said to Joseph, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? 
They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, the eldest, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Quite a story, a bit of a cliffhanger. Let's ask for God's help as we consider it now. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all your ways that are disclosed to us in it. We pray now that as we attend to this story of Joseph, uh, a story which in so many ways reminds us of the story of Jesus, we pray that you would touch our lives, uh, reorder them, transform them, and orient them to yourself for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the story as we've read it, uh, these, uh, this fa- fairly famous story falls into three chunks, and we'll consider each of the three chunks uh, this morning. The first 11 verses, you can see, are really about how the brothers and Jacob and Joseph are all together, but there's growing resentments between them. So we might say that this is the phase of rising resentment. And from verse 12, of course, it's the encounter of the brothers uh, with Joseph, that moment uh, near Dotan, when their anger boils over and they get rid of him. We might see that as the phase when anger acts. And of course the third phase of the story is when the brothers return back to their father, present him with the bloodied coat of their brother uh, and see what happens. And of course uh, Jacob is heartbroken and we see there that misery, the brothers... uh, It hasn't been the solution to the brothers' problems, has it? But misery is multiplied at the end of the story. So it's not a a happy ending as we get to the ending. Of course, as we proceed through the story, uh, through the rest of the Joseph story, we see transformation and change and reconciliation ultimately. But that's not where it begins. And we see as the story begins, if you like, the anatomy of, of anger. The, the way in which disordered lives bef- with each other and before God occasion this great uh, trauma in which the families separated from each other. So we'll think of those three chunks then briefly together. The first 11 verses then, the story of Joseph's dreams, and we see there this dynamic of rising resentments. Well, how is it that resentment arises. We see it in two ways, I think. One is that the uh, relationship that the family has is disordered. It's, It's dysfunctional on a human level. But if we ponder a little longer, we'll see that it also seems to be disordered in their relationship with God on a divine level. And the two things come together. Uh, they mutually reinforce to bring about this uh, destructive action that we see as the story proceeds. Well, it, it's disordered on the human level. And of course, right away we see this, uh, that verse 3 Jacob loves Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he showers this quite wonderful gift on it. Interesting, there's only two times in the Old Testament that we read of a robe like this and it's a slightly unusual term and we don't know exactly what it means, whether it's colors or design or what, but whatever it is, it's very distinctive and Joseph's got it and once he's got it, he wears it. Well, Why wouldn't you? Uh, But it's worth pondering what's going on with Jacob here, the father, as he showers this gift on Joseph, uh, the son that he loves more than any of the others. Uh, There's a real favoritism here, obviously, and one wonders, is there something at work here from Jacob's own upbringing? Of course, if we probe back a generation, Jacob and his twin brother Esau... Both were favorites, one of the father Isaac and one of the mother Rebekah. And the, the favoritism shown in that family, how Rebekah's preference for Joseph and Isaac's preference for Esau, 
worked itself out in the destruction of that family and spreading them to the four winds and traumas that don't get healed until decades later. And here again we see this kind of favoritism playing itself out in the family of Jacob itself, leading to the hatred of the brothers. Of course, that in part is a result of uh, a set of complicated marriages. You know, in these, these days when so much about marriage and sexuality is being discussed, it, it sometimes is pointed out, well, actually, you know, polygamy is just fine in the Old Testament. Uh, and not only true, in, uh, as it's pointed out in Western culture, we have a particular connection with a, an African country. It's quite a living thing there for multiple wives to be part of a single family. Well, it's, it's a true thing that the Old Testament doesn't uh, permits polygamy more than one wife to a husband. But it doesn't take pondering long before you see that every single instance of, a, of that kind of marriage results in disaster. Uh, it's hardly God's best purpose for his people, and it's gone wrong here. See right away in verse 2, um, Joseph's tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, now those are the, sly, what, the sons of, of the maidservants, of the two primary wives, if you like, of the sisters, um, Rachel and Leah. And there's already a kind of pecking order among the sons, according to who the mothers are. And it, one thing feeds into the other, and it's just all going wrong. Well, disordered and dis, uh, distorted lives then. Of course, now, it's a, unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way, wrote Leo Tolstoy. And perhaps our families aren't distorted by these same means that Jacob's family was distorted. But it's often the case that things play out over generations, that complex relationships in parents and children uh, result in further disordering of lives. And we see that unfolding to tragic effect here in Joseph's story. So things are disordered on a human plane, but they're disordered also in terms of relationship to God. Perhaps a slightly odd thing to mention, because, I don't know if you noticed, but if you were counting how many times God's mentioned as I read, you'll have counted none. God's not mentioned at all in Genesis 37. Does that mean God's not at work? Not at all. God's very much at work. And one of the burdens of the Joseph story as a whole is to show how God's providential purposes to restore his people are always at work. But we see it in particular, I think, in the way Joseph's dreams work out. Joseph has dreams. They're clearly God-given dreams. Um, but they only contribute to heightening the tensions in the family, not only with his brothers, but it seems, however we quite read it, uh, that the second dream is something of an irritant to uh, Jacob himself. Verse 10, when he told his father, his father rebuked him and said, what's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Well, slightly odd there, and maybe there's another reason why uh, Jacob is provoked. Because Joseph's mother isn't alive at this point. She's died years ago. And has 
Joseph's dream somehow sparked something of that uh, bitterness of loss that the father feels. Well, strange, Joseph has these two dreams uh, given by God and yet it's not going well. We remember then, if we pause, that in fact Jacob had had two dreams from God. He had one dream from God when he set out to flee from his angry brother. And that was in Genesis 28. He had a dream of a ladder reaching into heaven and the word from God comes to him to give him some promise of God's presence. And he has a dream again in Genesis 31. He's got a family of his own now and it's going wrong in the place where he's living with his uncle. And again, God speaks to him a dream to say, now it's time to move uh, Jacob and it's time to go. So Jacob in his own experience has recognized that God-given dreams come with, with promise and they come to provide guidance. Uh, but... Jacob doesn't offer this to Joseph in this story. Uh, for whatever reason, his own resentments prevent him from drawing on his experience of God in his life to share with Joseph of what his dreams might mean for his son. So, as I say, these two aspects of uh, disordered relationships, disordered on the human plane, disordered in relationship also to God. And so there is this dynamic as they reinforce each other of rising resentment as his brothers get angrier and angrier with him. Well, rising resentment leads eventually then to anger being acted out. Whenever I think about this story, I always ponder the wisdom at verse 12. Um, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And... Israel says to Joseph, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem, I'm sending you to them. And so uh, off he goes. In verse 14, he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Well, here's where it helps to have a little bit of the landscape in mind as you read the story. Um, Any idea how far it is from um, Shechem to Hebron? He's leaving from Hebron. Oh, roughly the distance from Edinburgh to Glasgow. It's about 45 miles. It's, it's not just the next valley over. It's, it's a couple days walk away. And when he gets there, uh, he still doesn't find his brothers. He's got to go on another 15 miles. He's a long, long way from home, isolated and on his own. We mentioned a moment ago that God isn't mentioned explicitly in this story. We see already one of the providences of God. Uh, in uh, verse 15 a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him what are you looking for now perhaps it's a strange providence uh, but this man who doesn't know Joseph who finds him wandering around seems to know who's Joseph's bro- whose brother's jo- Who's are Joseph's brothers? I'll split that sentence out in the end. Um, and where they are. And makes sure they connect this mysterious unnamed man. 
Well, again, there's a little reminder back to Jacob's story, because there was a moment in Jacob's life when he met a mysterious, unnamed man. Uh, as he was going to meet his brother Esau. And he wrestled with that man and discovered he was wrestling with God. And at that point, Jacob himself was sent on with a limp to meet his brother, but having met with God. And I think it's not too far to say that we see something similar happening here in Joseph's life, that as this mysterious man sends him on to meet his brothers, to meet suffering to be sent off into a foreign country, ultimately to be the one who saves and restores his brothers and many others besides. Maybe we see here too the providence of God in sending him forward. Well, of course, as we read the story, he does encounter his brothers and anger is acted out. When Jesus taught about anger in the Sermon on the Mount, he made quite a close connection between anger and murder. And that's precisely what the brothers start out with here, isn't it? They're so angry, they want to kill him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard it said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Well, that's a very short teaching by Jesus, but it's a very profound anatomy of anger. Because it's not just the same thing said three or four times. It's the stage of Jesus starts with murder and he backs murder up into anger. And then Jesus backs anger up into the statement of resentment. And he backs that statement of resentment back up into simple abuse or derision. An uncaring word for another person. And we could reverse that flow that the derision leads to contempt, leads to anger, leads to the violence. And that's precisely what we see here. And as Jesus' brother James said, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And again we see that human relationships and the divine relationship are deeply intertwined. And so the brother's anger now takes that final step to incline them to murder. Well... They realize that they aren't actually going to kill the object of their hatred. And Reuben and Judah, the two brothers who are singled out in the larger Joseph story, come up with different ways of dealing with it. I don't think we have time to look into their different strategies this morning. But what they both of them amount to is this, that our lives are better off without uh, Joseph And let's just get him out of our sight and out of our lives. Well, a little more complicated than that in Reuben's case. Uh, But they take the opportunity that's given to them, ironically by Jacob sending his son to meet them many, many miles away, and by the mysterious man making sure that they meet up, they take the opportunity to get rid of him. Anger acts, and it's 
an act of violence. And what had Joseph done to them? It's a strange question to ask. Well, he'd been foolish, hadn't he? He'd, he'd been proud, and he's wearing this coat all the time. He's even wearing it on this long journey from home. Uh, he's flaunting his dreams. But what had Joseph done to his brothers? Not, not a lot. And ultimately, their anger arises, it seems, out of their own sense of losing their father's love, perhaps, their own sense of unmet need, their wounded pride about their own parentage. Something in their own character is producing this anger against their brother. They're all symptoms of wounded pride and of their disordered relationships with each other. And that's so often the case that our anger has its prompts. We've been thinking about this in our own family recently. And and, uh, interestingly, I was in a situation of anger expressed earlier this week. We we think our anger is because of you when actually my anger is because of me. And it's going to take a lifetime for these brothers to come to understand what the nature of their relationship was. We really don't see until Genesis chapter 50, many, many years later, uh, that they've come to understand what God was doing in their lives and that they come to a situation of peace with each other. But important, I think, for us to realize that so often our anger isn't due to somebody else. It's due to what we're feeling inside about ourselves. And certainly the strategies of Judah and Reuben are designed to protect themselves from uh, either their father's anger or from their own sense of um, loss and lack. Well, anger justifies its own evils and it certainly doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And it leads us into the last phase of our story where we see misery being multiplied. Of course, they concoct their story. They bring back the soiled robe, soiled with blood, and present it to uh, Jacob and let him draw the conclusions. But as we mentioned at the, at the introduction of our uh, thoughts together they thought this would make them happy if I could only get this irritating stimulus out of my life it'll be fine and they get the irritating stimulus out of their lives and it just gets worse they plot to kill Joseph had been designed to relieve them of their jealousy and resentment that they'd been happier without them in the, him in the world, but it doesn't work out that way. And just in closing, note three dynamics about this uh, reunion of the brothers with their father, now without Joseph, who's off in Egypt. First of all, note that bringing harm to another only increases their self-concern. Evil only cares about itself Notice what happens in verse 30. Uh, If you 
are inspired to reflect further on the Joseph story. Find the Reuben bits and see how Reuben behaves. It's very consistent. Reuben returned to the cistern, verse 29, saw that Joseph wasn't there. He tore his clothes, went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Does he care about Joseph? Where can I turn now? And as the eldest, he has to go back to his father and say, but we don't know what's happened to your son. He only cares for himself. Reuben's reaction captures anger's outcome. Although Joseph is the victim, Reuben's concern isn't for Joseph, it's for himself. Bringing harm to another only increases self-concern. And notice... Uh, how evil escalates evil. Having sold their brother off into slavery, sorted out their Joseph problem, that's taken care of. They now have another problem. Their father. They've perpetrated a deception against Jacob and protect themselves by not uttering a lie. Verse 32, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And they let Jacob draw the obvious conclusion. And now not only have they sold their brother into slavery, but they've plunged their father into a lifetime, whatever's left to him, of despair and grief. And that's the third thing. Notice that evil leaves a permanent stain. Well, perhaps... We don't want to say permanent, at least a lasting stain. Verse 35. All his sons and daughters came to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. All this trauma will mark all the rest of their lives together. You know, the, the, the storytellers of the Old Testament are very careful in what they tell us and what they don't. And here it's clear that they're focusing on how uh, Jacob's loss is now leading to this depth of grief which is literally inconsolable. We're not really finding out about... Well, the last thing we read is that Joseph's in Egypt sold to one of the high officials. But what we'll find out eventually in the course of the story is that the brothers sold off Joseph while he's weeping and wailing and telling them not to. And they've lived for decades with the grief of having harmed their brother who was begging to be shown mercy. So, evil leaves this lasting stain. Their trauma will mark the rest of their lives together. And as, well, there's many dynamics that we could follow through uh, in that. I think time precludes us going into them. Uh, But as we pause, as we've seen how resentment rises, as we've seen how anger is acted out as we've seen how misery is multiplied I think as we draw this to a conclusion we ask ourselves did it need to come to this 
Did it, did it need to come to this? And I don't think it did need to come to this. What about Jacob as a father and as a guide? He had experienced divine promises. As we read in Second Peter, God's promises are precious and very great. And through them we may become partakers in the divine nature. But somehow it had fallen short for Jacob. What about Joseph? Well, we don't actually hear much about Joseph in this story that we've read. What happens to Joseph is the stuff of the following chapters. uh, And it's well worth pondering and tracking with. But it's clear, although it might sound quite superficial, just to say it without seeing how it happened, it's clear that what does happen is that he learns to depend on God in a way that he would never otherwise have done. And what about the brothers? Well, uh, it's interesting, there's quite a few of them, and they don't all experience the same outcomes. We read about Judah. Judah's the one ultimately responsible for saying, right, let's sell him, and getting rid of him. Judah, ironically, is the one who shows the most profound, transformed character in the wider Joseph story. God's also at work in Judah's life, somehow to transform him and to bring him to a place of repentance and to a place of reconciliation. And so we see that for those who've acted out their anger, there is hope of turning and repenting. The one who's experienced anger and is in fact in this case a real victim There is the possibility of experiencing restoration and knowing what it is then to not return evil for evil, but to return good. And in finding and returning good that uh, many lives are saved. And we see finally that in all of these situations, we have the same dynamic that a distortion and disorder in our human relationships ultimately affects our relationship with God. And if, like uh, Jacob, we've got a slightly disordered relationship with God, that's actually going to work its way into our human relationships. The two things come together. Well, I mentioned as we began that there's so many things in this story that remind us in the Joseph story of the, the Jesus story but where things uh, go most, more also more profoundly wrong and more profoundly right. Uh, a, a son who is sent into a dangerous place, uh, whose life is sold for silver, who's given up for dead, and yet somehow is restored to his father, and in that restoration brings life and hope. Um, that's the Joseph story, and that's Jesus' story. And if you're someone this morning dealing with anger, it's time to pause and say, what is it within me that's bringing out these anger responses? And there's no place better to ask that question than at the foot of the cross. The one who, though he experienced complete humiliation, rejection and loss, yet did not blame and was able to uh, forgive those who nailed him to a cross. And what if we're those this morning who've experienced, know what it is to be the victim, the one who's been on the uh, destructive side of someone else's anger, 
Well, it's a moment to say, uh, Lord, would you touch their lives? And, and I need to be healed too. Would you show me how my depending on you can bring life for someone else? So, so much here then for us. Uh, we've only seen the beginning of the story. And there's so much more to go. Uh, but as we draw this reflection to a close, may it be our prayer that whatever God's providences have brought into our lives, we might know in those providences that he is also the God who heals and saves.